guess we, we kind of just get on with the show. Um, so my name's Palmbe and uh, I'm the host of Two Scientists and David, uh, my husband, is tinkering in the background there over on Facebook. Um, and essentially our show is a way to present the work of uh, scientists, how they, the journey that they took to get there, um, the research that they're doing. And this has been a special set of talks just for COVID-19. Um, and today's guest, Susan, um, Susan Tsang, is that right? Yep. Yes, so Dr. Susan Tsang is um, uh, an ecologist, uh, com uh, conservation biologist who works with bats. And um, I guess I should start by saying thank you for joining us, Susan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's, I'm glad that people want to talk about bats because we never get to talk about them otherwise. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, that's a cool. So my, I guess my, my only, um, real connection to them is that we work on a protein, which is involved in, um, heat and chili pepper sensing. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's the same protein that's been suggested as a mechanism for infrared sensing in yes, vampire bats. Yes, in vampire bats. bats. Yep, I remember that. I thought that yeah. was really cool. Yeah, but vampire bats have so many cool powers. It's like they're <laughs> they're like the coolest bat. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but you you're in New York right now. How are you doing there? Um, I actually went back to Maryland because I haven't been back in a month. I need to pay my bills. So. Oh, yeah. So I left my brother with my parents now that he's out of quarantine and can take care of them. So I came back here and I'm under uh, required quarantine so that I make sure I don't have anything also. Um, but fortunately, a friend of mine drove me back. So I didn't like take any public transit or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's hard, it's hard to be in New York the last couple of weeks because like I grew up there. My brother is a police officer. A lot of my friends are you know, medical frontline staff like EMTs or doctors and nurses. It's yeah. always really hard to see what's happening with them and figure out how we can help them without directly impinging on their ability to work in the ER and in the ICU. So, sure. yeah, it's like basically trying to help out their family because they can't go home and making sure their parents are taken care of also, especially because their parents don't speak English. So, like, they need oh, yeah. somebody else who speaks Chinese to come and do stuff for them. So a lot of those NGOs don't work for them otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad your family's doing well, though. Yeah, no, they have surprisingly avoided um, everything in terms of getting infected because they listened to me. And also they survived through SARS in Hong Kong. So that oh, helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, they, they are very keen on the whole, you know, wear a face mask, wash your hands, don't touch your face because they've done this before. And the SARS yeah. thing went on for so long. And I was a teenager at the time, I think. So I remember that happened and I, uh, I was rushed home actually to New York away from Hong Kong and they were like, oh, there might be an outbreak. And they're like, get the hell out of here before there's no more plane tickets. Oh, wow. Yeah, because so, you're originally from Hong Kong, right? Yeah, and we were visiting our family at the time too because it was like a holiday. It was a uh, bad timing. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I always have some weird bad timing happen when I visit home. So let's give our um, listeners a little feel for what we're going to be talking about in this conversation. Sure. And tell us about your training and how you ended up working in your particular field. So I'm actually trained as a geneticist and I work on evolutionary biology and biogeography of these particular bats called flying foxes. So most people think of bats are these tiny little 
balls of fur and they eat insects and they echolocate, but mine are these giant bats. They're like the size of your forearm and their wingspans are as long as I am tall. And I'm only like five two, so not very, not very tall, but also a very big wingspan. So the giant bats are the ones that I work on and they all eat fruit and they drink nectar. So what they do is that they use a sense of smell and their sense of sight to actually track down their uh, resources and, and find like, you know, roosts and find food. So it's really different from what people usually think of as a bat, but they are super important for the environment, not only because they are pollinators, but they also disperse seeds. A lot of times when you go to these South Pacific islands, they're the only native mammal there because they were the only mammal able to make it there. And they would serve as part of a guild of seed dispersers with medium-sized like fruit, fruit doves and pigeons. But a lot of those have you know, become extinct because people ate them. So the bats are now the only seed dispersers on some of those islands. So there's a lot of places that really depend on them there. And also in Southeast Asia, they have a lot of plants that are really important for the economy and for the forests that are dependent on these bats to create seed banks and to actually pollinate them to make sure there's like high genetic diversity and the community is healthy. And we found that a lot of places, you know, when plants get separated because of fragmentation, because people are urbanizing, bats are the ones that can cross over, generalist species anyway, that can cross over these spaces and then help connect these plants still so they can maintain some level of genetic diversity. So that's not something that you would always expect. Um, birds sometimes behaviorally don't like to cross these kinds of gaps. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these bats don't care. Like the biggest bats in the world in, um, in Malaysia, they can fly from uh, Indonesia and then cross the strait into Malaysia. So like they do that every single night to feed. And they have these, you know, really powerful wings that are just, they're just amazing to see because you can hear them like actually flapping like leather when you like <laughs> are really close to them. Um, so it's, they're just really cool. And it's something that I um, fell into doing because I just am fascinated with flight in general. So I found myself studying, uh, let's see, I worked on birds before I worked on some butterfly, dragonfly stuff. And um, now I work on bats. So I've done a lot of flying things and understanding how flying is actually really an impact on what you do. So we end up going to these remote islands and nobody else is there and I catch a bat and it's like, oh, no one has caught the species for 50 years. This is the first record of it in a long time. And what happens is then we, you know, they suddenly say, wait, what's the population status of it? And nobody knows because we caught like two, right? And these are not the large colonial ones, but these are singlets that are in the forest. And so they're actually really hard to capture and ensure that you capture them because we don't know anything about their habitats and their feeding ecology. So we rely a lot on working with the community to understand where have they seen bats, where have they seen um, marks on trees or marks on fruit. And when we start talking to them, you know, we, we know that they are interested too because they are dependent on the fruit. And so they start asking us questions and we start creating partnerships with them where we can do community conservation and work directly with those people to then protect the um, bats that we do find there and make sure that people don't go out and hunt them. Um, in Indonesia specifically, there is a very large bushmeat market in uh, Sulawesi, which is in the central part of Indonesia. And a lot of that marketplace is where people get these pictures of like a row of these burnt bats that are like on sticks um, that actually are in the news a lot right now when they talk about bushmeat instead of the ones that are in China. Um, so there's a lot of work that I've done with my Indonesian students who um, is now at WCS Indonesia and working on wildlife hunting is a very new issue compared to working on like fragmentation and working on climate change and conservation. Uh, there's not as much data for most animals that are hunted and in Asia, Southeast Asia, 
the deformation of animals, so the removal of animals from forests is actually a bigger conservation problem than climate change because you have a lot of uh, what's called paper parks. So they're listed as national parks. They're supposed to have protection, but they have no animals in them because people can still go in and hunt all of them. You know, so there's, there's been a lot of criticism for some countries where they have that happen, um, especially for like rhinos in Vietnam, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there's a lot of these types of problems where it's very centralized to this direct exploitation of the animal instead of only the indirect impacts, which they are also feeling. So there's like this double um, impact that's really driving their um, declines. And unfortunately, we don't know enough a lot about these animals. Like they're either endangered already or they're threatened and, and they're very rare. And you can't know anything about them and then protect them. You can't make a species recovery program if you don't know how to protect the species. Mm -hmm. So we, um, we actually ended up doing a lot of work to make sure that we, everywhere we went, we talked to the um, government, we talked to the local community, and they talked to each other now so that they have an idea of what is going on with the bats and how that impacts them directly. And so we try to keep in contact with them. And Indonesia is an interesting place to work because a lot of people like to keep up with each other very informally via like WhatsApp. Uh -huh. So, so we have like different WhatsApp groups for different islands of people we've worked with. Um, and everybody's really into Instagram. So like, there's like an Instagram account for our community stuff. Um, and it's, it's really just a way for people to see that their work also has a wider audience globally. And mm -hmm. then they feel excited about it also because they haven't been able to connect with the wider world yet. So this is something for them, like, Oh, other people actually care about this too. Do you actually want to know what we're doing and see what we're doing? And like, we want to work harder because of that. And they, yeah. they once told me the, the first time I met one of the communities, they said to me, oh, so where are you from? And then when we told them, oh, we flew from Jakarta. And they're like, no, no, no. Where are you like actually from? Because like, you know, your face, right? And I was like, oh, okay. So, so I told them, I was like, well, technically I'm from Hong Kong, but technically I also came here from the U.S. because I live there now. And so they were like, they, every time I said somewhere, they said, oh, that's really far. And they said, oh, that's even farther. And then when I said the U.S., they're like, oh, you're crazy. <laughs> like, why would you come halfway around the world to study bats? And so we explained this whole thing to them. And they end up feeling like, oh, wow, there's actually a huge uh, group of people out there who are super excited about these bats. And they want to help also. And they'll help us and help us learn more also. So it's, yeah. a, it's a great way to communicate with them. Though. And just like, you know, face-to-face -face talks works very well. Yeah. It's so funny to have um, the question asked, no, where are you really from, from somebody who's kind of at least from the same continent? <laughs> I get that a lot from um, some of the places I work because uh, they don't really see a lot of East Asians in where I work. So um, I think during when, before K-drama was really popular, they would ask about Japanese. And then now K-drama is popular, they ask them, I'm Korean. And, and it always is very confusing to them because I tell them, no, I'm Chinese. And they don't like expect that I'm Chinese because there's actually two phenotypes, basically Northern and Southern and I'm Southern. And mm -hmm. so they're more used to Northern and they are confused. <laughs> and it's always, um, it's always kind of funny also when they don't understand like immigration. Like I immigrated from Hong Kong to the United States and I live there full time now. And so explaining that is also a whole different, you know, can of worms in terms of conceptually what that means for my life and citizenship oh for sure i mean so um i'm gonna pause for a second here just to say that everybody's welcome to ask questions at any point um but one of the things i wanted to talk about just before we we go back into the kind of the more biological side of things is um when you submitted your bio to us recently for a different event 
Um, you have a really impressive list of affiliations. So the <laughs> History Museum, the National Museum of the Philippines and the Smithsonian. How did those all come about? Uh, so when I was working in grad school, I, I was actually at the City University of New York and they have an affiliation with the American Museum of Natural History. And since I work on a protected species that requires that you work in a place that's approved basically to work on these legally protected by CITES, so that's the Convention for International Trade of Endangered Species. Um, that means I have to put the specimens in a place that says, yes, we have this you know, piece of paper and most universities don't have that, most museums do though. So I had to work there anyway. But on top of that, when I came up with my idea for my PhD, I said, oh, I wanna work on Southeast Asian bats. And there was no expert on that. So there was a bat expert at the museum and then there was a Southeast Asia expert at City College. And I was like, I'm just gonna join you guys together to be co-advisors. <laughs> and, and there's no way my PhD isn't unique then because there's nobody else I could find to do this with. Mm -hmm. so, so I ended up at Amon H and that wasn't the first time I was there because as an undergrad, I already had worked there as an NSF research experience for undergrad fellow. So I had been there, you know, many, uh, four or five years before that, and I already knew some of the people there. So it wasn't strange for them to see me to be like, hey, you kind of remember me from five years ago. Can I use some of your lab space? And they were fine with that. Um, and a lot of my work is also in the Philippines. And when we go there, our major partner is the National Museum of the Philippines, which is in Manila. Recently, it's gotten a whole refurbishment where there is this really cool DNA helix tree in the center and like it's six floors now and we've been repopulating all the exhibits. And it's very exciting because we've been waiting for this for like decades, like literally decades because the National Museum of the Philippines, it first existed before World War II, but it was bombed. And then it was moved to the Department of Transportation's basement. And that's where we've been and since like the 70s. So this is finally like a building we've been waiting for for so long to exist. And there's so much space for the public. Um, the staff are really excited to get freezers and more lab space and more specimen space. And I've been working with them for a long time, but my PhD advisor has been also working with them for decades before that. So we know a lot of the same folks and the mammal people actually know the same folks I know in the US. And so it was like an easy connection, just even indirectly. Um, so I ended up working with them a lot and we're really good friends and we talk a lot about just random things all the time. You have to have a good relationship with whoever your field partner is because you are alone with them for like hours and hours on end. <laughs> um, and then the Smithsonian came about because I moved down to DC after I finished my, um, my PhD. And at the time there was somebody I was working with in DC. So I had to have an affiliation with the Smithsonian to continue some of my research and also work with some of those people. So the Smithsonian had multiple units and I was um, first affiliated with the National Museum of Natural History, which is the one that's on like 10th and Constitution. And then also the National Zoological Park, which is where our mammal genomics team is living mostly. So because I do a lot more of that kind of stuff, I am usually at the zoo instead of the museum. But uh, when I work on the bat collection, I actually am at the Natural History Museum because it is one of the largest mammal collections in the world. And for my bats specifically, there are a lot of them in there. And they are from hundreds of years ago. They're type specimens. They're all kinds of things that you would really need as a scientist to study evolution. Um, and there's active programs and people who work on things that you can collaborate with. So I, uh, I ended up kind of still am working with the Smithsonian in that way. And yeah, there's, there's just a lot of places that I've uh, somehow become affiliated with. It's hard to explain otherwise. It's just, I, I have been very fortunate. I think this is also why I tell people that half the time success is based on like luck, because I just happened to luck into the fact that my 
PhD advisor was available and then, you know, she was able to help me. Um, and that's really a credit to her because she's great and she really tries to help all the students out to connect them to different people. And she introduced me to a lot of people who was working in my field that could potentially help me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so she, she knows what to do as a good mentor. So mm -hmm. that really helped. And my other advisor also knew what to do as a good mentor, even though he was new at it. He, we just talked a lot about it. So he would ask me like, should I do this? Should I do that? And he asked my opinion because I was his first PhD student. And so I just talked back to him all the time whenever I disagreed. So it was fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder if that was um, the same reason that I had such a good relationship with my PhD supervisor. So I was only his second student. And I'm guessing, very that, new. you know, it was really um, uh, still a learning experience for him. So he was, he was super tolerant of a lot of issues I had during my PhD. Um, but so with regards to your research, this is going to be a bit of a two-parter because our friend Roberts asked a question as well. So what do you mean by the term biogeography? And what is your favorite fact or anecdote about bat biogeography? Is there anything like Darwin's finches as a flying organism. I can think of one. Okay, so the first part, biogeography is a study of why animals are where they are. And then when you add the genetics component, it adds a time component. So that's phylogeography. So we're understanding where animals are at what time and why is that. And we use genetics as an indirect tool to tell us that. Um, but we also have to understand, obviously, their environment and some of the natural history to understand what we're interpreting when we get this evolutionary tree that shows the relationships. So I really like biogeography because I'm actually a very big fan of history also. And this is basically a way of studying history of a place by understanding the wildlife and the um, plants and forests that are in it also. You actually can tell a lot by if something is more Asiatic, like they, if an island has more plants and animals that's from Asia instead of from Australia, it can mean certain things about when that island had arisen. It can uh, verify the hypotheses that are given for the geology of those islands. And oftentimes geologists, they estimate what they can based on what they have for their information. But if you have other data, other lines of evidence that show the same thing or disagree, then they can continue making their science happen also. So it's a really good place to work interdisciplinarily. When I was an undergrad, I actually also had a, a geology major because I really like rocks and fossils. So it's actually very helpful that you know you know something about that and now I'm working with people who are in biogeography but for the most part most scientists who work on that um, focus on like genetics um, some ecological modeling also and then the second part um, wait <laughs> let me think okay yeah so okay so there's a rule for island biogeography where if you're near a continent then you're more closely related to that thing on the continent if you're the closest island and it becomes less and less related as you go further and further out on different islands, right? For these bats though, there's a ton of islands in the central part of Indonesia and they are all just kind of a mishmash, but there's a couple of large ones and there are very weird geolo geological histories. And so these bats do not follow the, oh, which one is closest to the continent has more species or has bats like this or that. And it's because they can actually fly. So because they have directed flight, not, you know, they depend on wind and they depend on other movement of land in order to get somewhere, they can decide where they want to go. So they are the ones that are in control of their destiny there. And so you do not find bats that follow that rule on these islands, and you can't predict anything about them. But that tells us also that these islands have had really weird geologic histories. Instead of having, um, we have a two crusts on the 
on the plates that crash and create mountains. Well, instead, these are from like volcanoes that are mm -hmm. under under sea, and then these pop islands up, right? So those are random. You can't really predict them as easily. And then you have these little pieces at the end of crust that will come out, and they'll curl in different ways to make different islands, what are called crustals. So there are all these different things that happen there that don't happen anywhere else in the world, and it causes the theories about um, when we think about the, the glacial maximum, you know, the ice age, the ice sheets will come uh, down towards, you know, the continent in Asia, and that sucks up all the water actually in Southeast Asia. And it creates places where they're now connected because the water is all gone. And so they have a lot of really weird places where it's connected that you wouldn't think they'd be connected. Um, and we're still slowly discovering some of those things by using information like pollen cores from the seabed and from information like you know genetic relationship between animals across different islands and we have different lines of evidence to try to show where those links are and we still don't really know though if those little corridors that are now ocean but previously they're savannas or forests or whatever if those were actually also barriers for the animals then like if that mattered or not so there's a lot of questions that are the opposite basically of what people think of when they think of those theories that happens to these bats specifically. And they, it's it's something that's like a super nerdy fact that I like, it's like a very specific one. And most of the time when people ask me like something simpler, I, I just tell them like, well, they actually eat, um, they actually drink a lot of nectar and people just don't even know that. So when I tell them like, yeah, that's why they're really good at pollinating because they're really silly and they stick their faces into the flower and it's just all over their face and they don't care. So they just, they do that for every single flower because they fight over them. So it's, it's really funny to see them. We have a lot of camera trap data to show that also. So it's hilarious watching them at night. Oh, that would be so cute. It, it's adorable. Are there links that we'd be able to put up on our website later? Um, so my students um, are not online, but I know there's another Teropis um, researcher who has some of her camera footage online. So I can probably send you a couple of those just to show people like what it looks like. And she works for an NGO in Malaysia also. So okay. she is very focused on trying to protect them as well. Okay. Um, so obviously one of the things that's really going to be affecting uh, your studies and the populations and bats in general are uh, is climate change. Yeah. So David asks, what's the expected impact on the habitat of the Asian bat? So it depends on which bats you're talking about. There are so many bat species and they're also different from each other that climate change will have different impacts on each of them. If you're talking about bats, there's actually over 1,400 species and in the world globally, right? And a lot of the more cosmopolitan and common ones are probably not going to be as heavily affected because they're tolerant of change and they can live in urban environments and live with humans to some, you know, effect. But the ones that are really rare and they're on islands are really threatened because climate change is going to end up, one, the island will probably disappear, but two, before that even happens, you're going to lose the wetlands and mangroves that are surrounding the islands. And a lot of times these bats that I work on and other bats depend on those spaces. And those mangroves are also nurseries for a lot of marine fish and shrimp and the things that go into the ocean that people care about. And, but we haven't really studied how those relationships work between the terrestrial and the marine yet. So that's something that I'm going to be working on in the next year. Um, so there's, there's a lot of these impacts that are, you're already seeing them and we just don't know how specifically they're applying to animals, but we know that their habitats are shrinking because of that. With a lot of cave bats, they actually have microclimates and microhabitats within the cave. So that's why different species choose different parts of the caves to roost in. 
And if you change the climate outside of caves, then you're gonna change the microclimate inside it also. And so you're gonna see that shift also in terms of where they're going to be and where you would expect them to be. Um, their prey base is different now because a lot of insects are really um, being heavily affected by climate change. And a lot of insect bats are obviously, you know, the majority of bats are insect bats. And so they don't have food anymore. And so it costs them more energy to hunt in order to find something or their prey base changed or, you know, they're not focused on the same things that we thought they were previously. And we don't know what they're eating in some cases then. Um, there's a lot of work right now by um, people who want to understand how these bats that like to hunt in the air, they eat things like um, these locust type things and like moths and things like that, that will be bad for crops. But we don't have enough information to know how much that impacts it in Asia. There's a little bit of data in the US for things like cotton, but in Asia, we haven't really studied that to a, a great you know, degree. So we don't have data and it's going to impact a very important staple, which is rice. And so that's going to be a big problem. Um, so climate change is going to be really bad for that. And then also for fruits, you're going to see native fruits. They're often being pushed out because they have invasive um, crops and other things that humans prefer taking over their space. And so the native plants that are not there anymore, some of the general spats will still eat them and then they'll also eat the invasive plants. What happens is then the non-native ones slowly push the native ones out and they outcompete them in order to take up that space. So then you lose the native plant community also. And then these bats will then have to shift their diet. The generalist species will be okay. The specialist species will not be okay. The specialist species usually are very picky and only eat the native plants and they rarely eat the uh, non-native plants. They're very tied to these native plants that they're used to it. You know, they, they're specific to that. And because we didn't know that until very recently for some of the species I work on, then, you know, people were just like, oh, it's fine because you just have some gardens out there and then the bats will be fine. It's like, no, you have to plant native plants. And we've been saying that for insects and other stuff too, but now also bats. You know, so there's a lot of that matters because a lot of the food that you see in the supermarket that are, you know, plant-based, a lot of those are also dependent on bats. And people don't really realize that, you know, sometimes birds also pollinate things, but birds might have a plant that has evolved for a bat and they cheat by like poking a hole at the bottom to drink the nectar instead of like going through where the pollen is. So the bat's doing all the work and the bird is cheating, you know, and a lot of birds do that. Um, so they're not very helpful. And it's not very helpful to just have these birds that do that. So you need the bats there. Uh, there's a lot of climate change is also just modeling how if there are um, diseases like the white nose syndrome that's impacting the bats in the US right now, if their range is going to shift because things are either getting hotter or colder or how it's affecting the ability of, um, of it to spread without showing up in populations in between where it might not be the best microclimate for it, but it's still like a carrier. So we don't know anything about that. <laughs> like we, we're, we're kind of like, okay, we're worried about how it's spreading. And it's already very upsetting that, you know, it's spreading slowly from the East all the way to the West Coast. And I remember earlier uh, last year, I think in the summer, like one of the first reports was like, oh, they found it in uh, Washington State or California. And we were like, oh no, like that's the first one that's on the West Coast, oh my God. So everybody, yeah, everybody was just like, oh man, we don't know a lot about the West Coast ones compared to the East Coast ones because we've had people caving here for a long time. We've had people working on the particular populations here that crashed because of white nose. And we don't know if there are other things like white nose that will happen to the bats that will you know, drive down a lot of these problems. Um, and then on the other side, there's the fact that we're, a lot of people are switching to wind energy. Mm -hmm. And it's not, that, it's not that wind energy is bad. 
But the thing is that bats actually do not go well with wind turbines. Um, so you have to actually, when you fly towards a wind turbine, there is what's called random chance that you bump into the turbine and you die, like as an animal, like a bird or a bat, and that's fine. But the thing is that if you're near a wind turbine as a bat, you will also die. And it's caused by a physiological change that like, you know, bursts them. And so they cannot be near them. And, they, and, and sometimes they will also go together as a group and then you will have them, you know, run into the blades as a group and it's not just a singular event. Uh -huh. So turbines can actually be slowed down and a lot of companies have been asked to slow them down anyway or turn them off completely. And those times are when there's not very much wind anyway, so the bats are flying, so they're not making that much energy. It doesn't really change that much of what they're getting, but mm -hmm. the companies refuse to do that. And so this is a problem for the wind turbines that are built on migratory routes for bats, because a lot more of them are being impacted then. And so we, we have been, we, certain people who work on wind energy have been talking to groups that are um, in energy, talking to states that are trying to plan what they will do with their wildlife and make uh, environmental, environmental assessments when they try to decide what happens there. Um, so there, there are other impacts that are not just from nature, but also from our choices and what we decide to do as humans to combat climate change. And so we have to be very careful about these like negative impacts that we don't think about because we didn't know this beforehand that you know migratory routes and how that's going to change that. So yeah, there's it's unforeseeable a lot of these problems, and I'm sure there are other unforeseeable problems that we have not oh, thought yeah. about yet. Um, they're just so key to so many parts of the ecosystem because there are so many different species that do different things that we really don't know how much we're going to screw up the environment even more if we don't protect them and don't help the populations recover. So we are working on what we already know is a problem and there will be more problems that come up afterwards. Yeah. So you think, you know, saving of the bees is sucking some of the energy out of your save the bat campaigns. <laughs> no, 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 it shouldn't be save the bees. It should be save the pollinators. You know, we're ah. all in this together, right? We're all in this together. You know, it's the bees and the bats and the birds that do it, right? We're all in this guild. We serve, it's everything serves a different purpose, you know? So yeah, we're all in this together. And I saw, I think this um, also went on the internet like viral last year, but there was like a picture of the supermarket with the fruits and the produce, like removed all the ones that depend on pollinators of only oh. about 20% of what was the produce layer there left. And that's true because a lot of those are very animal dependent. A lot of plants cannot move, obviously. They don't have seeds that are very light that can go on the wind. So they need an animal to either eat the fruit and then poop out the seed somewhere or carry the seed over to somewhere else so that the plant can repropagate. Um, but people don't know that until you tell them most of the time. So we have to actually like do a lot more communication with the public so that people understand that. Oh, for sure. So kind of related to that, Eric asks, um, how do North American bats from, differ from Asian bats? And in terms of the, that's in terms of their role in flora and fruit sustainability. So for Northern American bats, there's actually one bat that people call the tequila bat. It's, um, it's this bat that's actually more in Mexico and the Southwestern US, and it pollinates agave, which is what tequila is made of. So that's actually the primary species that people focus on for bat pollination in the US because the majority of North American bats are insectivorous. So you don't have as much of a, a breadth of things that they do. The fruit bats that I work on are only in Africa, Asia, Australia, the South Pacific. So they're Australasian and, the, you know, and, the, and they're African and they don't come over to the Western hemisphere. But then in South America, 
there is a family of bats where there is a group of them that are also uh, fruit eaters and nectar they're nectarivorous, you know, and it's part of the same really big family that includes vampire bats is they happen to be in this group that is super interesting where they've basically evolved their skulls so that they can um, exploit any sort of food resource. So you have a ancestor that is an insect eater and then one of them somehow became a carnivore. So those guys eat like frogs and mice and whatever. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, like tiny ones. There are a lot of tiny ones to eat in South America. Um, and then you have uh, fishing bats that can grab fish from the water by skimming. And then you have vampire bats. Um, there are uh, three species of them, and they are the they are the you know blood feeders where you can cut the you know, cut and then lap it up. It's like they're little cats actually when they lap up blood. It's yeah. kind of cute. Um, and then you have this group that's the fruit eaters and the nectarivorous ones. And that group is really diverse. They're called phylostomid bats, and they if you look up anything with their skulls, like it's so weird because you have like the basic framework of a skull and you have the nectar ones have this super long snout and it's really thin and they have a really big tongue that has a roll out so that they can actually go into the flower and the flowers that are evolved for it are super deep. Um, so there are bats that have evolved specifically to those niches in South America. For here with the, uh, with the leptonicterus, the tequila bat, um, we actually really need to care about it because the way that agave is collected in farms, it will reduce the genetic diversity of those plants. And if you have something like uh, a plant disease, it can wipe out that entire uh, crop, basically. So that's really unhealthy for the plants. And mm -hmm. what you need is like to mix in some genetics from the wild agave, right? That would be better for them. And what, what does that is the bats, because they will be the ones that are crossing across agave, different you know, areas of Mexico, different areas of Southwest US. And that helps maintain that genetic diversity so that the crop isn't as vulnerable. Uh, now you see a lot of people doing what's called, um, they're like bat-friendly tequila. So instead of cutting down all of the parts that, um, when you make uh, agave, you cut down the, all the entire crop and you just leave at least like 1% of it for the bat so that they can still go in, then that's enough to at least say like, okay, we're trying to make it so that they have habitat basically and food, right? But before people used to just cut everything down. And so having a lot of people work on the social science aspect to go out and talk to people and understand how they use the resources and then make plans for how you can improve their livelihoods and also improve that for the bats also um, by giving them a flight corridor that allows them to migrate because there are now actually plants that are there that they can feed on. In Southeast Asia, we have this issue of uh, conflict because you have a lot of farmers who grow crops like uh, mangoes and bananas and things that are really soft and easy to eat. And fruit bats love that because they can just stick their face in and just like mash it around them. It's like, they're really lazy. Um, if, they, if they could just lie in some bananas and just swim and eat them, they would. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, a, there's a captive colony somewhere that I've seen that actually, so I know this is true. <laughs> So farmers always blame the bats and a lot of times they blame them because they see holes and other things in their crops or they say, oh, I, I lost money. But a lot of times those are already like overripe and you haven't sold them anyway because you have to sell them a little bit earlier before they even ripen to get to market. Um, so there's actually no conflict in terms of what the farmer wants and what the bat wants. And in other places, there are bats that uh, they're just persecuted because people think that they're bad. Like they just think they're smelly. They just think they're you know, dangerous or whatever, and they'll shoot them for sport or to get them off the property. And so there's a lot of negative um, viewpoints from people that might be close to it. And it doesn't have to be that way because 
you can have protective measures that prevent things from happening, but people haven't really gone ahead and done that in some places because there have been no outbreaks and pandemics, so no one bothers to, right? So I'm sure everyone's watched Contagion at this point because we've all been in isolation for like a month. Um, so that entire thing at the end that they show where there was like a bat and then there was like a pig farm and then, you know, they zoomed out to Gwyneth Paltrow cheating on the guy and that was like the route <laughs> of transmission. So, so what happens is that that was from, the, the entire thing in Contagion was actually um, inspired by something that happened um, in the 90s in uh, Malaysia and in Bangladesh. Um, so, so there's, there's um, these sap collecting taps that people put into trees and mm -hmm. then they'll just collect them into little buckets, right? And the bats will just come and just drink it because it's just sugar. They love sugar. So they just come in and just drink it. And then they can just hang it on the tree and they can poop and they can pee and it goes right into the same cup, right? So you can make this little like wooden skirt basically to cover the top. Mm -hmm. And one, if it covers the cup thing and it covers your tap, then the bats can't just like go in. I mean, not as easily, but also like if they poop and stuff, it's not going to go in also. So there's like simple solutions that are low cost. And it's just like not everybody, you know, not, not everybody will know what to do or like have access to that. But everybody who's working in there and working on One Health issues have been going out and trying to communicate this to people and making sure that that doesn't happen again. So there have been a lot of efforts to try to prevent the next pandemic by creating solutions that are between communities and bats and benefit everybody. Uh, but there's not enough of that going on because we are very reactive when it comes to pathogens and when it comes to pandemics. And so we're spending way more money reacting instead of just being preventative and spending like 10 times less money. Yeah. So um, this is going to be the perfect pivot because you're starting to answer my questions before I ask them. Um, so David and I have essentially been binging on pandemic porn recently. <laughs> documentary any show um and one of the ones i really liked was pandemic the netflix show and oh, yeah. for us this was the first introduction to scientists preemptively um looking at viruses developing within certain kind of colonies of whether it be bats or birds um so can you tell us more about the work that they do in that realm so there was a very large, like a big science kind of project that involved um, people from all over the world, scientists from all over the world called PREDICT, and they, their purpose was to go out and to sample everything that could potentially be there. So bats, rats, birds, right? And then they understand the viral environment. Because you have viruses just around you all the time, right? It's just in the background. And then some of them happen to be in species, like in wildlife, not just bats, right? In all wildlife. So everybody has their own little, what's called a virome, which is your personal viral environment and humans have a human virome also, you know? So all these animals have something that is not affecting them. And we don't actually know what that is for a majority of species. And we only know that if we would go out and have sampled them. And so this particular project picked these large groups that are often implicated in uh, being the source for viruses because they have they supposedly are the ones that are passed it to like domestic animals that can then have more contact with us. But you look at a lot of these pathogens, the intermediary or even the original host is from a domestic animal because we have contact with them. And so we're increasing our risk by touching them a lot. When it comes from wildlife, a lot of times it actually has to go through an intermediary and then into you. It's very rare that like, it's not like a bird's gonna poop on you and you get the next SARS, you know, that's not how that works. Unless you get pooped on by birds like a million times a day and it happens every day to you. 
right? So it's, it's, it's people kind of misunderstanding how that transmission route happens. And we don't actually know as researchers necessarily what was the original thing and what was the not, you know, the intermediary that actually facilitated that change that will then spill over into humans. And we are, we're very bad at explaining to the public what a reservoir host is. And I think that's part of the problem. <laughs> so a reservoir host, basically, they just have these pathogens, not just viruses, but bacteria, right? And all these other things. And they just co-evolve with this animal. So they're all fine. Everybody's cool. But then somehow this pathogen will jump onto some other animal and this other animal is not evolved with it. And it just happens that this particular pathogen can attack that animal because it evolved in some way where it can. And so now that animal is sick. So it's called pathogenic. It's pathogenic disease now. It's officially a disease, right? And so then something happens with this animal. This happens to be a domestic one that goes into people a lot. That animal like coughs onto humans and it was a respiratory virus. And so it spread onto them because the humans have the droplets on them. And now it's probably the first time it didn't work, the second time it didn't work. But there is, you know, a pig farm with millions of pigs and every single day they're contact with them multiple times. You're going to get a chance where something happens or one of them might infect them. So this is what happens when people also go into forests where you're basically saying this is an interface that normally doesn't happen if you just have it by random chance. But because you're going into there often, you're increasing the number of chances that you're sampling the potential to get a transmission uh, spillover event. So we actually do not know a lot about how that first step happens because we don't know in the environment what those interactions are for some of these animals, but we do know when they are put in places like wildlife markets, they are being put in unnatural spaces in unnatural interactions also where they can then poop and pee on each other and cough on each other and you know all kinds of other things, spit on each other um, and they are also very stressed, so they might be um, compromised, their immune system might be compromised, and they will then end up being more likely to shed virus in their uh, poop and their pee and everything else that then people touch, and, uh, and eventually that ends up you know, spilling over into people. So there are these levels of contact that we are creating that did not exist previously, and it's just ramping up as we cross over more and more into these natural spaces. So wildlife markets are one of the best examples of how we do that. But you also have logging farms, for instance, they build roads into a forest and that increases access to parts of the forest that were previously unaccessible. And so now you're increasing contact with humans with these really rare spaces that previously had no human contact and now it's trying to deal with humans coming in once in a while just to cut down the trees also. And it, they, these animals could potentially be hunted and brought to the market, but also they might be transmitting something to people that they previously would never have done that because they were just deep in the forest. So yeah. there's different types of things that can happen to cause these interfaces to happen, right? There are a lot of people that have lived very you know, well with bats and other animals that have um, viruses and things that we are concerned about. Like, you know, there's birds that live in the city. There's bats that live in the city. Uh, people don't realize this, but every little gap in space in their houses and the suburbs probably have bats. Um, so yeah, so there's bats like everywhere, right? So pe people don't seem to realize there's bats and birds everywhere um, in cities, as long as you don't have to just concrete, right? So those animals are evolved in a way where they're tolerant of human change, and that's why they're not, you know, dropping um, viruses left and right onto the population, and they're not, you know, different viruses every time that we have to deal with. So there are animals that have somehow figured out a way where that works, but most animals cannot do that because they have evolved to be very specific to their environment. 
and they are very sensitive to change. And we sometimes actually use the presence of those species to understand if the environment is crashing. In a lot of those animals, that is what it's indicating, is that there are none of these anymore, and we used to see them in the 70s and the 50s. And so now we know that if that's not there anymore, there's probably something wrong with this environment that we don't even understand yet, and we only started studying this place, and we use it as a baseline, and that is, like, it's already, you know, crapped out as, a, as, a, as an environment. So we're just introducing lots of possibilities and chances for um, bats to spread those um, into another host and into humans. And I think a lot of people have centered the conversation around the wildlife market and around how the first case of it spread from the wildlife market into people. And in those cases, it doesn't always have to be a bat. It can be anything else that was in the wildlife market. It's just we've never really sampled those animals for pathogens. So the pathogens uh, that might be in animals because they're the most commonly trafficked ones, we might know them for primates that people buy for pets. We might know them for some birds that people buy for pets. We don't know them for pangolins. We don't know them for civets. We don't know them for some, a lot of snakes that are there, they're different species. We don't know them for you know, these really specific fish in some cases or specific um, amphibians that people also buy as pets. Like there's some really specific stuff in that background that we just have never sampled and we just always go to the go-to, which is bats. And so if you're gonna look for something, of course there's going to be more of it. So you look at the domestic animals, obviously we've been looking at that for a long time. So we have tons of research to show they have tons of viruses. And so you divide that by research effort, you'll see that bats are special still in a different way, but it's not in a way that's like, oh, they're just bags of you know, mm -hmm. pathogens that are causing this. Because it's the interface that is allowing that to happen with some other animal also. Yeah. So this is what I was thinking. Are there, are there animals that are more prone to passing on disease or... Um, is it just you think because they're not necessarily being studied for that? They're not because they're being studied for trafficking reasons and they're super rare already. So when people work on genetics for a lot of those animals, it's to try to establish the origin and the source of the trafficked uh, individual so that they know which laws were broken. Like if international lines were crossed, how many of them are, are there. And that work is still really new compared to other genetic work and other genetic databases that exist for most uh, threatened species. Like the pangolin stuff, we're only really starting to get genomics on in the past, you know, five years. And before that, we didn't even realize that they were the most trafficked animal in the world, right? So no one was looking for this. And now it's in everybody's mind because it's really easy to see, you know, a pangolin and their scales. It's really easy to smuggle. Um, people would put them in plastic bags and stuff them into fish. And then they'll like have a boat that will go as a fishing boat and they'll just have these pangolin scales in them also. There are different ways that you can hide wildlife or wildlife products so that it can be brought out into a different country. And so most of the resources are then focused on tracing where it's from. And it's very difficult to without using genetic tools sometimes, but we don't have a reference database to trace it back to. So now the efforts are in, okay, we need to actually make a reference database first but that doesn't sound exciting to a lot of funders, so they don't want to fund it. And so everybody's just working on that separately sometimes, and maybe it'll happen. Um, except for pangolins, they have tons of money compared to other animals that are in the market. So yeah, there's, there's just not a focus on it. It's so much money has to be put into um, conservation as like a social behavioral thing that's changing, conservation as like a communication problem. And those types of projects often take up a lot of the funding because we know that our problem is often with trying to figure out how we deal with the public, how we change demand. And changing demand is very difficult because you're trying to get rid of a social norm and restructuring it in a way that is beneficial to nature.
So yeah, we, we, we don't have the work for them necessarily. And I, I think people forget that other animals also have virums and have pathogens, you know, and most of the time nothing happens to them also. So mm -hmm. no one's been looking, right? So yeah, so when the, when the tiger happened, when it got infected, um, oh, yeah. everybody freaked out because there was research um, previously on SARS where they said cats and ferrets could also get infected, right? And then they were like, oh, this is basically upgraded SARS. And then people started testing cats and dogs and ferrets or other animals and said, oh, if this actually is going to be in cats, we're all kind of screwed because there's so many feral cats everywhere. So mm -hmm. they, can just, they can just keep passing it on. So even if we eliminate it in us, then it, they can still be a carrier. They can be a reservoir host and then they can go around, right? Yeah. So yeah, now everybody is very concerned. And I think people need to like chill out about like how come the tiger got a test? Cause the cat test is different from the human test. <laughs> and people are like, I can't get a test in New York and this tiger does. I'm like, yeah, cause the tiger is a different test. You're not a cat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And regardless, I mean, the, the point is that we're discovering that human health is not just human. You know, yeah. there, there are so many um, parts to this, to answering these questions, and we're now suddenly reliant on ecologists and conservationists to to do the work to make sure that we're ultimately going to be safe. And I think that the goal in the past few years, especially given the funding environment, was to have ecologists and taxonomists and the evolutionary biologists work more with the disease folks because their funding is not as impacted as ours because ours is considered basic research and theirs is applied research so our dollars usually get slashed more and they start at a higher base and they don't get slashed as much so if we work together then we can actually access their funding and we can actually make better questions also because now you can ask questions about why is it something happens and transmission and not just oh i found a virus so you can, add, you can actually have more complex questions about the transmission environment and about the causes if you have enough data to understand how that virus and that host is living in the environment, how it relates to the environment and to other animals also. Yeah, so this is kind of related to um, your funding issue. So one is from Robert saying, how do you think the crisis will influence infectious, infectious disease and ecology funding? Uh, with an increased profile on one hand and bad economy on the other? So our research specifically, a lot of us who work in molecular ecology, our programs have basically been destroyed because we all gave up our PPE for the hospitals and it's more urgent. Um, so those supplies are bought with our grant money, you know, and they're not things that you can write grants for to just buy gloves and buy, um, you know, other type of suits if you work on infectious disease. So everybody gave up all their stuff. So all our research is paused if it's in a lab. Uh, you can't travel right now, so you can't go out and do ecology, right? So all that, it doesn't matter even if it doesn't cost a lot of money, you can't go outside, so you can't collect any data. I feel really bad for people that have experiments sitting in a stream somewhere that they can't collect now. So, you know, there are experiments sometimes that are running that um, they cannot go out and check the data right now. So that's just stuck out there until we're allowed to travel again. Uh, for infectious disease folks, there's a lot of funding that's been shifted, at least in the U.S., so that it is an emergency response to the current situation. And it's to understand um, not just the making vaccines, but also making um, therapeutics and antivirals, which are things that can address some of the symptoms. It's not a vaccine, but it's something that at least can like alleviate some of them and address the viral symptoms that you, know, you don't die from it. Um, and there's different ways that you can do that, right? You can, um, you can impact different parts of COVID in order to actually get the same result, which is having less COVID, like no infection, or just getting rid of the more severe symptoms that you have from it. Uh, there's also folks who are working on things like um, new uh, gels and new surfaces materials where it doesn't stick onto it as much, you know, 
there's different ways that you can actually combat it by using our material environment also. So there's people that study that, that are like engineers and material scientists and chemical engineers that are still trying to work because they want to contribute. And this is the way in which they can contribute and they do not depend on having gloves to do their work so they can still work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so in a lot of the infectious disease labs, we're seeing like mass collaboration because they know that no one's going to have enough supplies to do everything themselves. So we're all just going to work together. There's no time anymore to just separate. Everybody just needs to work together. And sharing that data has become so important now and having that understanding of, okay, we cannot fight with each other anymore. We need to actually collaborate. That was not an attitude that was very common, actually, unfortunately. And so I think that they will see that, you know, they're going to get this funding. They're going to be fine for a little while and addressing this, but then they need to figure out how they are going to pivot back also. The starting up for the basic research that does depend on having gloves or going outside that's going to be really slow because you have to figure out if you can go outside again, figure out if your um, permits and your um, international travel permits still work, figure out if your collection permits still work, figure out if your collaborator can travel and if your collaborator is healthy, you know, figuring out because they're, they have different rules in different countries, right? So there's a lot of things that have to be figured out as we uh, near a close, hopefully by, I don't know, I don't know when this is over, but when it's over, you still have at least like one or two months of logistics, basically, just figuring out how you're going to do things. And there's going to be people ordering gloves and kits and everything else that's going to be completely out of every single you know, company. Like Kyogen is going to have no extraction kits anymore again, right? And they, they've been trying to ship them out in mass right now, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to have nothing. We're going to have nothing to start with. And you have to just re-ramp up everything. So unless you're further along already and you have something you can work with, I can't see how we can start anything new. And even if you're working on something that's further down, you don't have gloves, so how are you going to do lab work? So uh, we're, we're going to see something, uh, we're going to see a really big change, I think, towards like data science stuff for a little while. Mm. I don't think any of us have any more funding to do anything. I think a lot of people even said, um, especially for early career scientists, mm-hmm. we've had events that were canceled that matter a lot for our careers because they were things like invited seminars. And now that they don't have that, it's harder for them to prove that, like, oh, we have accomplished these things. Yeah. A lot of scientists are actually leaving it on their CVs and then they just put canceled because of COVID. And it seems to be like everybody says, well, we all know what this was at least. So it's, that's our excuse. And if it's postponed, great. But if it was just yeah. canceled completely, they're just going to put that there. Just be straightforward with it. Yeah. So we will see what happens. Um, yeah, nobody knows. We're just a whole new world right now. Mm-hmm. I'm really starting to wish that I'd ordered some kits a couple of months ago. <laughs> Those are the things you never think about. You're like, oh, I just have like 200 of them on a shelf. That's enough. I don't need to buy more. And you're like, well, now I can't do anything because I have no kits. Yeah. So on the flip side, there's a question from Gwen. I assume it's Gwen and not Etienne this time. Um, and she says, did the quarantine confinement have any impact so far on their way of living? And I'm assuming she's talking about bats. So I would assume this is a hypothetical right now because you don't know. We don't know. And um, I don't think anybody will know for a while because we can't go outside. We can't handle bats without gloves, right? That's not allowed. Um, you have to wear your PPE when you handle wild animals. There, I think the supposition is that most other animals that are tolerant to human disturbance have been doing well because they can just now go roam in the city that nobody is kicking them out of. Presumably the bats are also going to be doing that, but like lights aren't turned off in street. So it's all the same really. Um, so those, those urban tolerant bats are probably okay. 
The ones that are in the forest, though, I have no idea. Um, my, my main concern, actually, because of quarantine was not for bats only, but for other threatened animals that are poached, because most of the time, you need boots on the ground, not just from international mm -hmm. folks, but from the community itself to patrol very large spaces, like national parks even. And now you have nobody patrolling them. And so you have hunters and poachers that can go in very easily and take things, and you wouldn't even know until your tracker is found in a different country, right? So there's a lot of problems that we can't address because we're locked inside. And we shouldn't go to those places necessarily, though, because we're, I'm in a very heavily infected place. If I go to an isolated remote place and I introduce it to that community and they didn't have it before, then suddenly they're all infected. You know, so it's not ethical to be going to places like that, mm -hmm. um, especially because I work on remote islands where it can then stay and become a reservoir to then pass back outside, even if we addressed it in the rest of the world. So there's a lot of issues of going to remote spaces where you just shouldn't do it right now. And so you just have to wait. And it's, it's agonizing sometimes to watch like, well, the, every day that I'm not out there, there's like some tiger that's going to die. So that's terrible. Oh, man. And actually in the news from a couple of days ago, they, they said in South Africa, there were six rhinos that were poached um, and trafficked out. And they, you know, they found out that I think Wednesday. So yeah, that's happening for sure. It's just, we don't know how much and we yeah. don't know what's going, what's, what's going to be at the other side because we don't know how long this quarantine is going to be. And different countries were impacted at different times also for the quarantine. So we're going to not have a, the, the same release time. So we have no idea. Yeah, so um, this question from Etienne, I guess, could also apply to the fact that you haven't been watching the bats for a while. And he said, given what you mentioned about the impact of climate change, what kinds of ecological rescue strategies could be used for Asian bats? So for um, the fruit bats, especially the big ones that I study, one of the best things to do is restore mangroves. So mangroves are actually a very small percentage over all of the global environments, like 7% or something, but they're super important for everything. You know, they're, they're important as spaces for things on land. They're important as nurseries, things in the ocean. They are uh, protecting the land from erosion. They have, you know, this ability to basically siphon out the metals and then they can just have clean water go into the fresh water. You know, they have all these things that they do. And yeah, people, people forget, right? And so when you calculate the um, productivity and this is how people used to value ecosystems, right? They calculate the productivity based on how many plants there are and the number of species and how much energy it produces. And so that's why the rainforest and, and the coral reefs are always the most productive, right? But now when you, you look at what does it actually do in a way that actually impacts us directly as a society, mangroves do a lot and it's not been valued for that. And so their economic evaluation is now much higher than it used to be. But we've drained most of the mangroves in the world. And so... If you are eating shrimp that is really cheap, it's probably because it's from Indonesia or it's from Thailand and they drained the mangroves there to build aquacultures and then they um, farmed the shrimp there. And that gets exported cheaply overseas. And we've actually seen an increasing global demand for shrimp. So that's spreading out more and more. It used to be just Thailand was the number one and now it's both of them competing for number one. Um, so there, there's a lot of issues like that that people don't realize. Um, mangroves are also something where you do need a lot of time in order to put, the, put it back together, right? Because you need to have a nursery where you would have grown some little mangrove trees and then you have to put it back out, out there and you have to have people that have the time to put them out there and check on them because they are next to an ocean a lot of times, you know, that's not a very good place for some of them. And you have to plan how you're going to build it so that, that ocean doesn't impact it. Not a lot of people know how to restore mangroves because it's not an environment that we've done a lot of work on to know how exactly is the best way to do it. Um, and species of mangrove trees vary across the world. So you have 
multiple species in places in Southeast Asia, if you're on a different island, for instance, but you might have the same one on the continental ones that are in Asia. So you can't just plant the same plant and hope that it works in the other places also, because it would be a non-native. And we don't know that either. We have no idea. So yeah, so I, I think that actually is the most important action because that environment, it will be impacted by climate change in a way where, you know, the oceans are rising and stuff. But mangroves, you have to remember, they have these really crazy roots that go like this. Mm -hmm. So it goes over the ocean water. And there's actually islands sometimes that are just made of mangrove trees and then like dirt gets collected in the roots, right? Um, there's a lot of crocodiles in them. I've walked in some of these to go to bat colonies and it's dangerous. Um, <laughs> don't go, there. most people should not go there. Um, <laughs> Thank you money for that. <laughs> uh, Nat Geo. Nat Geo loves sending me to random places. <laughs> so yeah, so I think that might be something that people can also think about as a ecosystem that it, they might not know as much about. But if you look at the equivalent in the US or in temperate zones, you can think about them as wetlands. And wetlands also have the similar kind of function. It's the same, you know, functionally where it's that liminal space between the uh, freshwater and the seawater and saltwater. So it's doing kind of a lot of the same things. And your freshwater supply is really important, obviously. And we are going to have a problem politically and, you know, economically with having a lack of freshwater in the next 50 years. So you want to protect your freshwater supply and your aquifers and everything like that. So you want to maximize your ability to protect it and mangroves do serve a purpose in relation to that because of filtration and because of protecting against erosion. So that's really important and nobody thinks about that most of the time. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. as someone who lives in Florida, we have a lot of amazing scientists at USF who are working right. on um, maintaining and restoring mangroves. Right. Um, so yeah, we feel your pain. <laughs> yeah. Um, but on the subject of kind of helping improve pollination this is from eric he says do bat boxes in our backyards help the bat population or is this wish sustainability do you recommend effective sustainability practices in north america and he says uh in the midwest <laughs> so the bats that are in the u.s are mostly insectivorous so when you put a bat box out you're going to get one of those insectivorous species and they all kind of you know bunch up into little bats and there's a, like a hundred of them in a bat box or whatever um, there are certain bat boxes that work better than others depending on the space that you're in and it very de much depends on where you put it. So some people just build it and then they put it in a place that might not be great for a bat. Let's say it's too close to your house and the lights go on like a sensor goes on and it's a random light that would make the bat not want to live there. So no bats will come to a bat box because of that. Uh, you want to put it somewhere where you know it's dark and it, there's actually like a food source nearby and it's probably protected from squirrels and snakes. There's all these guidelines on Bat Conservation International. They have a whole thing about like bat houses. You should check that out. Um, they actually hold events where people build bat houses and, you know, like as a community. And you can just buy one if you're too lazy to build your own. Uh, but yeah. it's fun to build it, actually, because it's really easy. So I encourage people to do that just as a way to help. Um, the bats do end up in people's uh, um, bat boxes. And I think it's really important now to have them, especially because of white nose. You want to have these environments that have never been infected uh, just as an option out there for the bats. And yeah. I think that- White nose is. Hmm? Can you explain what white nose oh. is? So white nose is a fungal pathogen that has attacked bats since 2006 and it has crashed uh, multiple species populations, not all of them, but most of the ones in North America, um, to the point where they've had 98% uh, extinction from some caves. So some caves used to have like millions of bats in them, and now they have four, you know, or zero. 
you know, like it's gone, right? So because it, it's a very quick spreading one amongst the population. Mm -hmm. And when they hibernate together, they're all going to pass it to each other. What happens is this, uh, this fungus basically is like it eats up all the energy in the bat and the bat wakes up too early. It's still winter. And then it goes out and it tries to find food because it thinks it's spring, but there's no food because it's still winter. And then it dies. And that's actually the, one of the first bats I saw that had white nose before we knew what it was, was that I just happened to be in college in upstate New York. So we had no idea what that was. And we were just like, why did we find a dead bat in the middle of winter? Like that doesn't make any sense. Right. So yeah, that, that's, um, that's a major concern because it's affected many of the species. Even the ones that are tolerant to the infection have had population crashes, not as seriously, but you know, pretty seriously enough where their populations are not as common as they used to be. It might have contributed to some of the amounts of insects that people see go up in some places that might have depended more on bats than on other animals to eat those insects. Um, for a lot of that white nose problem, it's basically spread slowly from New York and upstate New York, and then it goes kind of outwards towards the north and then around the Appalachian Mountains. So it went south and then it kind of goes around. And it's, it's made its way to the Midwest kind of slowly, but because most of the work on animals from the state um, is on big game animals in the Midwest, sometimes the data on Midwest bats is actually like, pretty scant, actually. There's like one or two studies here and there. Um, some master students might be working on it right now, but it's not as common as like people studying it on the, the coasts where they have these huge caves. And these huge caves come from the fact that, you know, the mountains that were there were very old and they've been hollowed out over millions and millions of years so that they, are, they have caves for these bats to be in, right? It's not really the case when you have just plains and we yeah. don't know where they're roosting. So we, um, we have not done a ton of work that will um, address that specifically in the Midwest, but we have tried to work on the sustainability question overall for bats in the U.S., at least for us, and in other countries have obviously done that. There is a a UN-based program in Europe called Eurobats, where there are 23 signatory countries. And it basically says that, you know, bats migrating across the range states, they will all be protected under this. And that's great because then you don't have to have different laws in different countries protecting them in different ways. Because mm -hmm. they're going to cross those boundaries really easily. And our, like the fact that we're a huge country, it just doesn't cross as much. So like, it's fine. But you have like those, you know, tequila bats, they cross between the U.S. and Mexico, then you do need some protection for them in some way if they're threatened because they're crossing international boundaries. And you need to understand that the regulations are the same on both sides in order to create a successful conservation effort. Um, so there, a lot of energy has been put into that. And so they've actually got delisted a couple of years ago from the Endangered Species Act because of that. So there have been success stories. It's just people are not aware of them. And it's very rare for us to find that because, um, there's just not a lot of data on if a population is actually doing better sometimes also. Um, it hasn't reached the final point where you can say it's stabilized also, even if you see an increase in one year. Mm -hmm. So that, that trend has not been bucked. It's just one particular year they might have given birth to a bunch of like cubs or something for tigers, but it doesn't mean that that tiger population is safe if somebody kills the cubs immediately right after. Yeah. Yeah, so this, for those of you who don't know, um, Susan was actually part of a Taste of Science event we had on Saturday, which was awesome. We had a panel of speakers with different backgrounds and we were talking about the long-term impacts on uh, humanity as a result of the pandemic. And we had a question from Elena as part of that that we didn't get round to. Um, and she, this is much more general since clearly you're into science communication. I thought this was appropriate for you. Um, she said, how do you handle communication with the general public about COVID-19 or other sensitive and controversial topics? 
um, to communicate accurate information, to convey the importance and seriousness of the situation, but without causing panic? Um, and how do you find that balance? I think part of it is just like personality wise to the public, I'm pretty calm. Like I don't talk to people in a way where it's like, oh my God, you should be scared. And like, I'm usually really laid back when I talk to the public just as a way to be like, you know, this is just information. Uh, you should use a neutral tone when you talk to people is to not affect their opinion anyway. And, and just don't use words that um, immediately put a negative mindset into the person who's listening to you. So instead of being on the defensive, we can use words that help bats and help other animals by using things like, you know, if we study bats and study their genomes, it will help us understand the functional genes that allow viruses to actually invade hosts. And that actually can help us protect ourselves. And so we, I did not mention any words about bats being like reservoir hosts or holding viruses in the way where they're blamed for being sources. And those types of things are helpful when you're trying to convince people that this is important. This also applies to when you're try, just trying to talk to them like, well, you know, and sometimes if you use excuses like, well, all of these animals have it and it's in, all in the environment, like it doesn't work on people because it's obviously like, you know, it's one of those like all lives matter kind of excuses mm -hmm. that doesn't work. So yeah, it's just, it just, it's not true in you know, ways like that, right? So so they end up not saying like, oh, we don't believe because that's not, that can't be true, right? So then they just dismiss you and then they don't listen to you anymore. And mm -hmm. so I never say that to the public. I mostly say that within other scientists and people that are um, interested in science. Um, they actually mostly want to know like what, what happens with the bat. Like when you tell them, oh, they are able to live with them because they evolve flight and flight causes this constant fever state. So their immune response is depressed. And so they're constantly just like, really healthy because they're flying everywhere basically because they're running a fever that's like nope 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 and then these viruses are just hanging out like okay well nothing's happening but you know that they have a, a really different type of system basically for working with viruses that we don't and so that's why they can tolerate all of them and so they're really cool and we should understand how they did that so that we can induce similar states if we needed to for instance or we can induce something that uh has the same type of reaction in our own you know cures or in our own antivirals and therapeutics but I, I don't think people see that as like, when, when you just say they just have viruses, they don't see that as like a benefit. But when you look at how you study viruses and how you get vaccines, you have to study the virus in the original host. Mm -hmm. you, know, you need to understand how it's actually part of the host and why the host is tolerant to it, right? So like the first vaccines were made by studying the viruses a little bit more. But they understood like, uh, what was it, cowpox? Like they understood it in cows and then, it like was in, and then they brought it to humans, right? So they actually didn't directly put it in humans first. They're like, oh, these milkmaids all seem to not get it. Why is that? And then they realized it was because the cows give them a similar version and then they applied it to humans. So that's, that's a very basic way of finding a new vaccine because it's, a, it's an animal we have more contact with. But for bats, it's the same. It's just, you just need to understand the host better to see what happens, to see how that transfers to humans and how it applies to us. We do that for all kinds of other things. It's just people get scared when they say it's a bat and then they just don't look at it anymore. Um, yeah. So, I mean, from a more personal point of view, obviously there's been an increase in racism against Asians and this has been in pretty much every country where you have yeah. any population of them. And uh, do you think there are ways that you can use science communication to combat um, people's understanding of, I guess, so one of the things I was reading recently was about wet markets. Now I have to admit, I'd not heard of them before. Um, and a number of people that I know who are from 
or lived in uh, East Asia at some point said, well, wet market is just a market, like it's a produce mm-hmm. market for me. That's yeah. what it means. Yep. And there are petitions going around to ban these things. Yep. Um, so how can we help kind of combat that? That's a lot based on how governments understand what is a wet market and what isn't. And I think that there needs to be a distinguishing factor of this is just a wet market that has produce that people eat. This is a wet market that has a ton of wildlife that's illegal that you haven't shut down for some reason yet. And those are the ones that you really want to be focusing your resources on because you don't have law enforcement everywhere, you know, spending their resources going out and closing mom and pop little shops selling produce. That's mm-hmm. dumb, right. But you, you do have them in places if you know there's illegal activity. And yet in a lot of these countries, they do not bring law enforcement to shut down some of these wildlife markets that definitely have animals that were trafficked. They're smuggled. Even if they were not protected, the volume that happens, it, it breaks smuggling laws. And so you can still arrest a person for that. Um, there are tons of things that happen uh, in those markets that will create more interfaces between humans and wildlife that do not exist. Um, especially when you deal with places like Indonesia, they bring stuff all the way from Papua to Jakarta. And that's a, you know, that's a big difference. And then sometimes those get shipped out to other places afterwards too. So you're crossing these huge distances that make it really hard to track with just, you know, distance and models that we used to use for viruses and how they spread. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it makes it very hard to track sometimes. So that's why I like contact tracking is really important, like specific contact tracking. You know, so we haven't done any of that either, right? So the cops, I think need to be able to, and like the law needs to be able to distinguish what is actually a wet market. And they should just say like a market that sells wildlife. Um, because people still eat meat. A butcher with pork is still a butcher. But if you have, and, the, and usually the pigs are dead already by the time you bring them to the market. But like, if you have a market where you're selling live birds, you're selling live civets, you're selling live uh, primates, you're selling live bats, these animals are still existing and they're still shedding and they're still being stressed and they're still being in contact with one another in a way that could potentially end up in viral shedding. So those animals and those types of markets exist and they're not just called wet markets. It's just there, there are like specific types of wet markets that are wildlife markets. And sometimes they are in the back of the produce part of the um, wet market too. So you want, you want to shut those guys down. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't need to shut down like the people selling produce up front that have nothing to do with them. Yeah, yeah, you'll yeah. get those guys in the back that have been selling birds for 20 years illegally, mm-hmm. you know, and they haven't. Um, so that definition, I think, matters a lot. And I, I think the lack of understanding um, in a global sense of what a wet market is has caused some of these problems for people like saying like, oh, we're just going to close all of them. This is a problem. That's not what it means, really. Um, I, you know, technically, if you go on a street like in Vietnam and there's like uh, a granny selling you some some ingredients like uh, produce or like the you know garlic and something like that, that's kind of part of a wet market on a corner usually, where there's a mm-hmm. bunch of old ladies sitting there selling different things, and it's just like a street wet market though. And when I was a kid, we lived in Hong Kong. All of the places we bought our produce from daily was a wet market. It was like the back alley of the block we lived in in the ghetto. And it was like two rows of, um, of people selling different things along these rows. And that's where we bought anything that was um, organic, basically. So any, any meat, any fish, uh, well, any meat, any fish, any produce um, would be coming from there. That's technically a wet market. But you wouldn't close something like that because there's no wildlife there. It's mm-hmm. just regular farm stuff, usually. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it's just legally, they just need to be more specific. And mm-hmm. I am sure if it comes down to writing something legal, they have to be more specific. So I, I don't, I don't want to judge what's going to happen until I see a draft legal document. 
because then they can get more specific to say, this is what we mean when we're calling it that in this document. Uh, or they can just give it another name and say, that's what we're going to refer to it as in this document. And that's going to be the law and the regulation. But that hasn't happened yet. So I don't know. Um, I, I think that that's going to be a really big problem if they just said all wet markets are banned because there are some things that are wet markets that people aren't even aware of. Mm -hmm. like they, that, and they will be you know, shut down or they'll be harassed off the street by the cops and you'll suddenly have a ton of people who can't buy food or they can't sell their food to other people to make money. And you're going to have a different problem than for the cops, not just the wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially the people who are calling for these things who don't understand the culture or what the words mean should potentially do a little bit more reading before they react. Yeah, yeah. I, I found that to be true of a lot of things. Um, like in even like in terms of being Asian American, like if you go on the street, it doesn't matter if you're Chinese or not. Like if you look East Asian, basically everybody's going to be like, oh, go back to China. And like a lot of people who were Korean or like they were Japanese are like, yeah, we're also really aware of this right now because like we're getting harassed also. And like I have young children and some people are violent. So I have to be really careful about when we go outside. And now they just stay home because we're all isolated. So it's fine. But when they, when they have to go buy groceries, like, I have to go by myself because I don't want to have more of my family potentially be infected also. I don't want to subject them to this possibility. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people yell stuff at you from across the street very loudly. It's basically what usually happens. Like I've, I've had some lady yell at me from across the street. I had some lady who was like coming up to the supermarket and I was trying to get around her because she was walking really slow and she was talking on her phone. And as I was coming past her, she like elbowed me with her, with her, um, with her phone hand and she was like, Arr! and then she yelled at me a little bit. I was like, aren't you talking on the phone? Like, why are you yelling at me? Don't, don't double, don't do multiple things at the same time. Just talk on your phone, go away. You know, so that's it. Yeah, this weird things have happened recently. Um, but yeah, my South Korean colleague said that her niece and nephew were being harassed in high school. Like, people, get over yourselves. I mean, it's also this particular administration happens to be one that says it's totally fine to be terrible to other people in minorities. So that actually engenders an environment that encourages that type of action. Whereas, you know, usually people have shame. And so, like, it doesn't happen as often. Shame. It usually helps. It's the peer pressure. It works. <laughs> Yes, let's have more peer pressure, at least for, for those kinds of activities. Um, so I, I think, honestly, we, we could carry on talking to you for hours. We should probably get on with our lives. But before you go, um, we asked you to think about a story for a segment we called The Dirt. And we know that generally field biologists and field scientists have the best stories to talk about themselves and embarrass themselves in public. So. Um, Yes, dish. So my story is about when I went to this mangrove, this island that was very remote, and there happened to be Komodo dragons on it. So as a background, Komodo dragons are not only on Komodo Island. They're um, on a lot of these little islands that are satellite to Flores in Indonesia. Um, they can swim, so obviously they can make it to other islands outside of Komodo. Mm. Um, and they, there are some of them that also occur in certain parts of Flores. But uh, we were told that there was a giant colony of bats there, flying foxes. And I said, oh, we have to go there then. There's no, no way we're not going there. So we went. 
And the first thing that happened as our boat pulled up into the bay was we said, oh, no, 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 we can't pull up. There's a really big Komodo dragon like sitting on the beach sunning itself right now. And it was something like 4 p.m. in the afternoon. So it was very sunny. And we just sat in the boat for like an hour and just waited and just like chat. And then eventually it left. And we said, okay, great. Because then we had to, to really quickly bring the boat up. Because normally we set up nets in um, other places to try to capture the bats like at four, because you want to do it before the sun goes down, and then you close the net, and then you open it when the when dusk has passed. So we were behind on time because of the Komodo, and we were like, shit, we, we don't have enough people. There's only like four of us also this time in the boatman, so there's only five of us, not a lot of people. Someone has to watch the boat, so there's only really four of us. Uh, if there's Komodos here, that's really bad, because you can't go somewhere solo. Um, and my, my colleague looked at me, he said, you're like Komodo food size also, so you probably should go anywhere alone. <laughs> <laughs> and I told them, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's legitimate. Um, and then the um, the forestry guy, the ranger, said to us, oh, there were some Germans who came here some months ago, and uh, they told us there were nine Komodos on here, like big ones, and they're like really, really big. And we said, okay, what do you mean by big? Because this is a very vague term. He starts drawing a line in the sand, and he just kept on going, and it was three meters long, which is like nine feet. And... <laughs> And we, I looked at him, I said, oh, I am definitely Komodo food size then. So we got to go with a buddy. So everybody's had to split up with a buddy. And the first day when we were there, we, we finished eating our lunch and we had some um, bones from the fish that we had less leftovers and we buried it in the sand. And some of the leftover rice, we buried it in the sand. The next day we come back and we're in the boat again. And we said, oh, it's the same Komodo that's coming. You're sitting on this beach. And we're like, wait a minute what's it looking at? And, and then it has its head in the sand pit that we had put our trash in, our organic food trash, and it was eating the remains of our lunch from yesterday. And it was just sunning itself like, oh, free lunch, great, you know? So it was just chilling, and we just had to wait until it was done and, and go in. And once we did, it, it left, and it left this very long tail, you know? And when we split up, we took down the nets, we come back, and me and my buddy said, okay, we're done, we didn't have anything. I wonder what's taking those other guys so long. Well, maybe if they got something, it's really hard to take the net down then with two people and like you don't have enough hands to get the bat out also. And he said, you know, I feel like I should go help them. I said, okay, you can go help them. Um, you know, he said, we can't just leave the equipment here. Someone will steal it. So someone has to stay on the beach. And so he said, well, you can't go into the mangrove alone because we think it'll get eaten. So like, I'll go into the mangrove alone to find them. And then you just stay here. And I'm like, okay, this is a, a plan. It is noon. It is high noon, the hottest point of the day. I'm going to leave me alone on the beach where Komodo's usually sun. Okay, that's, a, that's an idea. So I, I waited for them to come back. He left, and I was just kind of hanging out on the beach. And then eventually there was this tall grass, and we hear this rustling sound. It was the same sound we heard yesterday. And we were like, oh, there's probably a Komodo there. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and I look around, and there's nothing on the beach I can go on except this very tiny tree. Um, the tree is maybe like five feet tall, maybe six if you count the top part that you can't climb on. Um, and Komodos can actually, you know, lean up against some of those that really want to try. So, so I, I'm just thinking like, I just don't want to be on the ground. So I'm going to climb this tree and I'm going to hang out on this tree. And um, there are a lot of ants on that tree. And I still climbed that tree because it was just much safer that way. And when I got to this branch I was sitting on, I could actually see it coming through the tall grass and it was a little bit further, but I could tell it was coming to the beach. It was like, it's sunning time. But fortunately, the guys were coming back and they, there was their noise of them talking. 
And because these Komodos are not acclimated to people, they are actually really afraid of people and they'll just run away. Mm-hmm. So I could see it stop and then I could hear them coming closer and closer and then it just ran the other way. And, and I come down and they're like, why are you sitting in the tree? I'm like, I can't even tell you. You just left me alone and be Komodo food, man. Why, why did you do that? Bert and these people are your friends and colleagues. He's, yeah, these are my close friends, like my work husband and like my close colleagues. I'm like, what, what, the, what the hell, guys? But yeah, no, I have a ton of um, field stories, but that one definitely was the most, that was really close. The day you almost became Komodo food. Love it. It's always the giant reptile threatening me. It's not a Komodo, it's a giant crocodile. It, because people don't go into those mangroves, and so they still exist, and the bats are all there. So all my stories are about giant reptiles. Well, long may you survive to carry on doing your work. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Susan. Um, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I've got, I think everybody's had such a kick out of you answering our questions. Um, we will put up links to both this video at some stage and we'll lead back to your Twitter account so people can follow you and hear all your cool stories. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks again for having me and also for the Taste of Science one. I hope everybody oh, learned a lot. Yeah. Yes, yes, so happy Friday. I forgot all about my beer. <laughs> uh, me too, I only have water, so happy Friday. <laughs> <laughs> all right, take care and speak to you soon, I hope. Yep, thanks, bye. All right, bye.